Our focal scripture this morning is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. John the Baptist prepares the way. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Lord, we are so grateful for this text that strikes us with a sense of urgency and with a sense of necessity. Um, and helps us to realize just exactly what it is we're talking about when we talk about Advent, when we talk about your coming, 
and when we look forward with eager expectation to your return, I pray that you would apply this text to our hearts, and even as our opening prayer said, that we would see here the proclamation of the prophets, and that we would heed their voices, including that of John the Baptist, and that it would change our perspective going forward. I pray that this message, as always, would be a challenge to us, but would also be encouraging to us that it would solidify our hope in the gospel and that we would have great joy in believing in that gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Advent is a season at odds with the world. Properly understood, Advent is really at odds with what we call the holiday season. Um, I've tried to make it a point that Advent is not really the Christmas season as such. That comes a little later, and that's important for Christians. Uh, We can think about the way that Christmas continues to push back deeper and deeper into the year. Uh, Did anybody here have a Christmas tree up before Halloween? Okay, I see a couple. Okay. It's getting bad. It's we we might have to have a support group. No, it's it's a beautiful season, and I understand why why it's done, and we love the joy and the hope for it. But in the Christian calendar, when we think about Advent and then this movement into uh, Christmas and the twelve days of Christmas that follow, what's so exciting about that is that we rehearse this story again and again. And Advent gives us opportunity to look at the world, to look at its current state, and to grieve. And we grieve because the world is tragically broken. But that also means that Advent gives us the opportunity to proclaim a message that is different, to proclaim something new. And that's precisely what we find in John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, we, we, of course, want to call him John the Baptist because we're Baptist and it makes him seem, seem like he's one of us. But But John is known as the baptizer because he's one of these last prophets who goes into the wilderness. And he's one who's announcing that the Lord is on the move. He's a voice, as we're told, crying in the wilderness, a flicker of light in a world engulfed by darkness. Uh, One preacher that I really like to hear, a priest, uh, is a, she's retired now, but her name's Fleming Rutledge. In an Advent sermon, she writes this, like John the Baptist... Advent is out of phase with its time, with our time. It encroaches uncomfortably upon us, making us feel some degree of dissonance with its stubborn resistance to the usual round of shopping and wrapping and baking and partying. I've never seen a picture of John the Baptist on any Advent calendar, yet he is the foremost figure of Advent. That's true. John is the herald of the Lord's coming, which is all we mean when we talk about Advent. He is the forerunner. He's the last prophet to proclaim that the Lord himself is on the scene. And for that reason, we're looking at John's message this morning. We're looking at what John has to say, because his message is to proclaim the arrival of the Lord or the King of the universe. And with such a message comes earth-shattering realities. What I mean by earth-shattering realities is the fact that the Lord comes on the scene is so colossal and so massive that things will never be the same again. Everything about human history, 
Everything about time and space, everything about the world is forever changed by this moment some 2,000 years ago, right after John proclaims this message. You'll have to excuse me for the mic here. I twisted it and then it got caught on my mask and now it just doesn't fit my weirdly shaped ears apparently. Uh, these are, it's supposed to mold to any shape of ear, but, but not mine. We're in Luke chapter 3 this morning, and I promise to try not to distract you too much with with the mic. If you'll join me in Luke 3 in any way you have a fashion, uh, let's look at the first three verses as we stumble through some of these names. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Tetrarch, by the way, just means he rules a fourth of of the area. and his brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins." Now, there's a tremendous amount of historical background here, and Luke is really good at giving us lots of that background information. He's a true historian in the sense of being interested in what's going on at the time. And so he gives us all this background information that puts us somewhere around the year, let's say, 26 or 27. But I'm less interested in the background information and more interested in the text and especially the contrast that we see in this text. Notice all these names. They're really hard to pronounce, so they're kind of hard to miss, but at the same time, they're easy to pass over because they are just, you know, historical facts. But I think Luke's setting up something more interesting here. So we have these names of the most powerful people in that region. We have the governors and the rulers. We have the religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas. And then, by contrast, we have something else. These people have their authority, but John, we're told, receives the word of God as his authority. So there's this contrast with the word of God that came to John. While these political figures and religious figures may see themselves in power, and while others might recognize their authority, John is driven by a different authority. He's driven by the very word of the living God. We see how John stands in opposition to the world. He stands armed with the word of God, and he's preaching an alternative message. Notice verse 3. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance, of change, of turning, of a new way of life, of moving away from the status quo and of moving to something new. And all of this is said to be for the forgiveness of sins. Now, this baptism in this case is an illustration because it exemplifies the idea of repentance. For someone to get baptized means they're going to step out of what they've been doing and step out publicly and show that they are now identifying with something new, namely John's message that something new is happening. And this something new, we're told, is really good. It's fearfully good because it involves judgment, but it also means with that judgment comes forgiveness for those who would receive the coming king. And that's the good news. 
Luke and Matthew and Mark, for that matter, begin by quoting a passage from Isaiah to help us understand this. And they, they do this to describe John's ministry and his purpose. Look at the next three verses, verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now pay close attention to Isaiah's words. Again, these are from Isaiah 40. They're really important. You're probably familiar with them this time of year. They're a famous part in Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people is how it begins. Prepare the way of the Lord, Isaiah says. And what I want you to know is in Isaiah's prophecy, the word Lord in Hebrew in the Old Testament is the divine name Yahweh. It is the one true God, the living God, the God of Israel. And that's important because John is the forerunner that Isaiah was talking about. And that means the next person on the scene is Yahweh himself. The Lord himself follows the voice crying in the wilderness. And so what we know and what Luke's telling us is that John is here and next comes the Lord himself. There's nothing ho-hum about this. And I think we're accustomed to hearing this. I think we hear this message probably routinely around this time of year. But let's take a moment to really fix our minds on the significance of this message. The living God is on the move. Preparation is being made. The one true God is invading this world. Now, that language may catch you off guard, but I think it's helpful language. He's invading the world even though he has every right as creator to take the world back. But the world, as we know, has been occupied by rebels. It's been occupied by Satan, the ruler of this world, as he's called in Scripture. And here we have the God, the one true God, invading this world. That's colossal. This is bigger than anything we can imagine, which explains Isaiah's language quoted here in verse 5. He says the natural order is being reversed. He says the valleys are going to be raised up or they're going to be filled. The mountains and hills are going to be leveled. The crooked places are going to be straight and the rough is going to be smooth. How else do you describe the arrival of the one true God? How else do you describe the arrival of the Lord himself? What other language would you go to other than saying everything we know about the world is going to be forever changed? The mountains, they're not going to be mountains anymore. The valleys, they're not going to be valleys anymore. Everything is going to be forever altered. And verse 6 tells us that everyone will see the salvation of God. Now, I just want to take a quick moment before we move on. I want to point this out again. I think it's really important. Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, Jesus isn't really, you know, God. He's some sort of great teacher. He's a half God. Or he never really identifies as God. Or the Bible doesn't identify him as God. And if you've never heard that, all you need to do is turn on the History Channel around this time of year. And you'll hear that sort of thing. But notice very clearly that there's no doubt in Luke's mind who Jesus is. He takes a prophecy from Isaiah about Yahweh and says this is about Jesus. John is the one preparing the way for the Lord. And who comes next? Jesus. 
So it's very clear in Luke's mind, it's very clear in John's mind, who is on the scene. And Jesus here is being identified with the God of the Old Testament. The same God Isaiah was talking about. He is being identified as the one true God. There's no doubt about Jesus' identity. And such a colossal statement, such a colossal moment, requires a response. Look at verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones these natural stones here on the ground, to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now John's language might seem really harsh, and it is on the surface, but don't forget what he's talking about. He's talking about the Lord of the universe, the one who brings nothing into being through the mere spoken word, the eternal one who creates time itself. That's who's coming. That's who's here. With that in mind, John's language makes absolute sense. The language of judgment captures the urgency of this moment. Just consider an illustration for a minute. Imagine you live in a kingdom where the rightful king has been absent for many, many years. Let's say decades. And during the rightful king's absence, as often is the case, those people who have an interest in corruption, those people who have an interest in self, have begun to take power. And all sorts of corruption has resulted. Injustice is everywhere. People aren't treated fairly. In fact, people are abused and treated poorly. But one day, a watchman on the wall cries out, As he's standing on top of the wall, he cries out and says, I see the rightful king with an army approaching the gates of the city. And he's armed for battle. He's ready for war. And as the rightful king approaches the gates, this king cries out with this loud, ferocious voice that he is there to take back what is rightfully his and to sit on the throne and rule his kingdom forever and ever. And he will destroy all corruption in that kingdom. If that happens, there are two options. You can fight against the rightful king or you can resist those who have taken that king's spot. Right? And stand with the rightful king who has come back. That's precisely what John's talking about. He set up a scenario, he's talking about a reality that this world is under the authority of rulers, political, religious, and cosmic or spiritual, whatever word you want to use there. But we've seen Herod, we've seen Pontius Pilate, Tiberius Caesar, we've seen Annas and Caiaphas, all of these rulers in the opening of this chapter, and those are not the real rulers, The real king has come back. This is the situation. And so John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He means there's a decision to be made. The king's arrival demands change. The king is at the gates. It will not suffice, as he says here, to simply point out who they're related to. Right? That's what they're doing. They're saying, well, Abraham's our father, so we're good. 
We don't have to change anything about ourselves. Our heart doesn't have to be mended. We have the right pedigree. And John says, no, no, that won't do. The king demands allegiance, not family history. He's interested in those who would actually want to follow and obey him. And so what John is announcing is the beginning of the end. The beginning of the end of the world as we know it. The status quo is being undone. The order is being reversed, which is precisely why his language is so striking, why it's so stark, why it's so shocking. He says the axe and the fire are ready. John is doing what all prophets do. He's he's using language that seizes our attention. Right? As soon as you hear this language of, of the axe being laid to the root of the tree, you immediately hear it and say, what's going on here? This sounds serious. That is precisely what all of the Old, Pro- Old Testament prophets did when they described this moment. Amos, as just one example, describes the day of the Lord as a fearful day of darkness. He says, don't rejoice about it. Be frightened by it. Now, why would he say that? Because judgment and reckoning are coming for those who have a vested interest against the Lord and in the way things work in this world. The Lord's creation has too long been in the hands of corruption. And the Lord is here to reverse that, to change it, to bring something new. So John's language reminds us of the urgency and the necessity of repentance I'll give you an illustration of what I think repentance looks like. In 1517, you should know that date by now. I've probably said it two dozen, three dozen times. Uh, Martin Luther challenged the prevailing views of the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And he was acting the part of John the Baptist in that moment, almost like a modern-day John the Baptist. Luther was a voice crying against the corruption. In his case, it was religious corruption. When he posted, as he did, his 95 points of contention, his arguments against the Roman Catholic Church on the door of the local church there in Wittenberg, Germany, his first point was this. When the Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This repentance is ongoing. It's urgent. It's necessary. Because the claim is there is a new king. Actually, there is a rightful king. And that king is demanding our allegiance. Despite what the world says, despite what it looks like around us. This is what allegiance to the king and his kingdom looks like. It means turning from mere religious ritual and turning to the king. It means resisting the corrupt kingdoms. The announcement of the king arriving calls for a level of resistance to the way things are. We might even say that it calls for each one of us to be a voice in the wilderness, preparing a, pre- preaching a message that doesn't jive with the status quo, that goes against the grain. We see several examples of this in the next verses. Look at verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what should we do? What's the response? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. So a new way of doing things. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And if you know the background, you know that these people are uh, those who would take more than they are entitled to. They are looked down upon. They are seen by the Jewish community as traitors because they work for the Roman Empire against their homeland. Collecting taxes. 
And they say, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. He doesn't say leave your position. He says do it differently. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Roman soldiers were notoriously underpaid and they were well known for extorting by force and by fear money to supplement their income from local citizens. There was no way of writing a letter to, you know, the HR department or anything like that to rid them from your city. They could do whatever they wanted. But again, he tells these soldiers, look, you can continue in the place you're in, but what you must do is you must do it differently because there is a new order of things here in this world. Give you one more illustration of what this looks like. Jean Donovan, maybe you've heard her name, was born in 1953, and she was born to a well-to-do family. She went to college, which is pretty impressive for, you know, someone in the 70s, a woman in the 70s, and earned her college degree. She enjoyed success as an accountant, but she was unsettled. Even though she had a great job, she was unsettled, so she quit her job and spent two years as a lay missionary in El Salvador. Now, El Salvador at the time was incredibly violent. In 1980, when she was there, in the first five months alone, there were over 2,000 murders in El Salvador. Jean cared for those people by distributing food, offering medical aid to the wounded. The problem was, as this country was in total political chaos, priests and nuns were often the targets of violent mobs. So predominantly Catholic workers in the area, but it was the priests and nuns who were the targets of the so-called death squads who were sent out to destroy them. And this forced many of them to leave their churches, to leave the parishes, and the task of caring for Christian parishes often fell to people like Jean, these lay missionaries. And that's what she did. At one point, she wrote to a friend saying, Several times I have decided to leave El Salvador. I almost could, except for the children, except for the poor, bruised victims of this insanity. Who would care for them? Whose heart could be so staunch as to favor the reasonable thing in a sea of their tears and loneliness? Not mine, dear friend, not mine. Just two weeks after writing that letter, Jean and three nuns were returning from the airport with their uh, w- returning from the airport, and their van was stopped by six paid soldiers who assaulted them and then killed them. The soldiers were ordered to humiliate and destroy so-called subversives, and that's what they did. Now, that's an extreme story, but it is a story of repentance leading to fruit. It's a story of a woman who was so captured by the news that Christ had come and that He's coming again that her whole life was radically upended, and she began to act as though a new order was in place. There are also ordinary forms of resistance, such as refusing to partake in the hate and the slander of the world. Maintaining integrity when nobody else cares about it or no one else would know. Opposing the drama and divisiveness of our society. Ordinary forms of resistance are inviting the lonely to share a spot at the holiday table. Fostering and or adopting children. Rejecting the selfish spirit of consumerism. Taking a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening to gather together with other believers. Being intentionally formed by a faith that is, at odds with the world. Those are all ordinary forms of resistance. See, repentance and resistance, those two things together, that is the Christian response to a world under the weight of sin. 
It's the Christian response because our allegiance is to another king, to the real king. Look at the last verses with me, beginning in verse 15. As the people were in expectation. See, they're waiting. They're longing for something new. We feel that longing, I think, every Advent. And that's why it's so important that we grasp the season of Advent with all of its longing. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, whether this is the moment they've been waiting on. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John says, I'm not the promised Messiah. I'm the forerunner, the lantern which shone in front of the Son of God. The baptism of Christ is different. It's not a baptism of water. It's not an illustration. It's not an example. It results in decisive change. It is a baptism, as we're told here, of purifying fire and the Holy Spirit. See, the language of judgment that's here in this text, talking about the winnowing fork in the Christ hand, the language of judgment reminds us that this world is under the weight of corruption, but the King of all will do what is right. He will right every wrong. So he has a winnowing fork because he's capable of righting every wrong. But his baptism is one of purifying fire and the Holy Spirit. It is not like John's baptism. It's not like religious ritual. It's not just being dipped in some water. It is an idea of having the Spirit of God indwell people and change them. Now in a moment, we will come to the table this table, to partake in a strange ordinance gifted to us by our King. I want you to reflect on this because it may seem insignificant. We're going to eat a wafer and drink some juice this morning, but I want you to resist the urge to see it as insignificant. I urge you not to believe that. See, when we come to the table, we are participating in an act of repentance and resistance. We are repentant because we come to be nourished by the king at his table. We need nourishment. We won't live without the nourishment. We come not in our own merit and not by our own virtue. Instead, what we come, we come proclaiming Jesus' death on our behalf. We come proclaiming that he has been graciously given to us to make us righteous so that we might be the dwelling place of the living God so that we might be houses for the Holy Spirit, so that we might be, not this building, we might be the temple of the living God. So it's an act of repentance, because no sane person would come forward for that reason. But it's also an act of resistance, because it stands opposed to the world's insistence on policymaking, endless activity, and practicality. You know, the world wrings its hands as things go wrong. And and we do the same. We want to fix things and we want to stay on top of things. And and what what the world would do is it looks at our tables, it would see this bread and this cup as insignificant. What what are we doing? But we must realize that what we're doing is a sacred act that marks us out as those whose allegiance belongs to the true king. The table may seem insignificant in a world of devastating corruption, but this seemingly small act 
is a voice in the wilderness with colossal significance. As you come to the table this morning, you are proclaiming a message that stands opposed to everything the world holds on to. You're proclaiming the very message John the Baptist proclaimed, that the Lord himself has come. The Lord himself has acted decisively, and things will never, ever, ever be the same again. I want to pray for us this morning. As always, we say our invitation here at the end. I'll just remind you once more that we're available. We would love to share with you if anything struck you. We would love to talk with you about church membership, anything that's on your mind. But most importantly, what we're interested in is the state of your soul before Christ Jesus, the real King. And we would love for you to follow Him and take up your allegiance under His banner. So if that's something you want to talk about, we have a pastoral staff. I'm here. Uh, Pastor Rupert's here. Pastor Chris is here. We have our our ministers as well who are great in their pastoral function, uh, Suzanne and Anne in our children's ministry. So you can reach out to any of us. Our contact information's on our church website, or you can simply call the church office and get in touch with us. And we'll be around after the service as well. But for now, let's pray together. And at the close of our prayer, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together before we come to the table. Lord, we are are shaken by the message of John. Once more, hearing this voice in the wilderness crying out that there's something new, that there's an alternative to the ways of this world, that there is a path to see it righted. That there is a real king who is coming to take the throne. Lord, I pray that we would see both in the past what change this reality has created for us now. And also that we would have eyes to see into the future what change it should cause in us who believe he is returning once more to set all things right. I pray that we would have hope that the decisive blow has already been struck. And that we would see that it's just a matter of time before this world is put to rights. And Lord, in the meantime, I pray that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That our allegiance to Christ would produce new fruit in our lives. And Lord, as we come to this table, I pray that you would nourish each one of us. You have welcomed us here, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so now, Lord, we pray in faith as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.